This is the John Oakley Show podcast. All right, away we go. Topics worthy of discussion for Pizzaville. Dial pound 3636. It's the usual Wednesday crew. Gotta love Mernie Eves, the former premier and finance minister in Ontario. How you doing? I'm great. How are you, John? Likewise. Thank you. John Turley, you risk management consultant specializing in capital markets, extensive experience on Bay and Wall Streets. Good afternoon, John. Good afternoon. And Dan Moulton, uh, a VP in Crestview Strategies Toronto office, a liberal strategist and media commentator. How's Dan? I'm doing great, John. Good. Happy Wednesday. I Happy, happy. Uh, well, not everybody's happy. <laughs> There's no joy in Mudville. Uh, to the east of us, you know, the train tracks have been uh, taken over by protesters. Now, uh, I'm going to ask you if, because Jugmeet Singh said earlier, uh, Justin Trudeau ought to quit gallivanting across Africa, and he's heading to the Caribbean looking to secure uh, votes for a seat on the Security Council. Uh, he ought to get right away back to Canada, get involved in this whole dispute. Ernie, I'll start with you. I mean, I know you recall the days of Wash, and that was a tragic situation back in the mid-90s. Prime Minister have a role to play in this? Well, I think ultimately, obviously, he does. Um, It's it's a difficult situation because nobody wants to criticize or take on the Indigenous people. Yet, when you look at what they're protesting over... Like, people have a right to dissent. There's no doubt about that, and they have a right to protest. But they don't have a right to, you know, stop people's chlorine for their water supply or stop anything else, or people themselves, for that matter, going from place to place for days or weeks on end. And somehow this has to come to a conclusion. It can't be allowed to go on forever. You know, what they're protesting about the overwhelming percentage of Indigenous people and their bands, their nations, voted in favor of this. It's the few hereditary bands or nations where they don't actually elect their chief who are stopping the whole thing. I mean, we've heard from the court system, we've heard from politicians, people have a right to protest, they have a right to dissent, but you can't say that 4% can hold up what the other 100 96% want to do forever. That's not your right. It's, All your, right. it's your right to protest, but is isn't your right to hurt other people. Well, Dan, is it as simple as the rule of law should trump all other considerations here? I think Ernie's right. Everyone has a universal right to dissent and to protest. And these communities, uh, and these young people in particular that are doing that in British Columbia, have every right to do that. The courts also have the power to impose an injunction, and law enforcement then has a responsibility to enforce that injunction. And that's really where the friction comes in, where the difficulty comes in, because we do have a history in this country of law enforcement abusing that power, uh, going a bit overboard. And I think that there are feelings of tension in British Columbia right now for a number of reasons. One of them is the way that the RCMP have chosen to enforce court-ordered injunctions on the traditional lands that the people are protesting over. Uh, Some of them are showing up in quite aggressive fashion, uh, something more akin to what you'd see south of the border. And I think that's causing concern. The politics of Indigenous rights are a bit different in uh, British Columbia as well, I would say. I think, you know, here in in Ontario and other parts of Canada where treaties govern those relationships, it's a lot easier for governments to participate in an equity-sharing arrangement or uh, a negotiation with First Nations people. In British Columbia, the lands are unceded. 
and there are not treaties that govern them. And so hereditary chiefs do have a role in this conversation. The democratically elected leadership also has a role, and it makes it very difficult in that province for governments to negotiate with Indigenous peoples and come to uh, an agreement. And I think we're still working through that as a people, and we're seeing here, um, we're seeing here what's happening in British Columbia, some of the bumps in the road. Uh, so, on, I mean, then the question of Justin Trudeau, I mean, it seems more urgent than ever that the prime minister, the Well, leader the prime the- minister isn't a traffic cop either, right? I think the prime minister has a role to play here, but I don't think we should over-exaggerate what the prime minister should be doing in this situation. It's for the courts and it's for law enforcement. And it, it's in many ways, we're up to provincial levels of government as well uh, to, to have a role here. All right. Uh, symbolically, if nothing else, but how do you untie this Gordian knot, John? <laughs> well, uh, you know, to me, it's it's really comes down to the premier of British Columbia and it's a governance issue uh, with the Aboriginal communities. That is, who has the right to make the decision and speak for them? And I think that uh, in BC, uh, you know, in terms of trying to negotiate uh, where this pipeline would go, uh, perhaps the BC government didn't think through uh, all the challenges that Dan had mentioned. Uh, And really, it's up to the BC, I think, probably now to step back and figure out how they can solve this. I'm not sure what Justin Trudeau could do uh, you know, right now, uh, going down to, uh, you know, what's he going to do? Free the via rail trains. It's just, it's, it's not (laughs) possible. So, so I mean, but, but to Ernie's point, uh, there does come a time where you cannot endanger the broader, uh, health and safety of, of communities across the country who, for instance, uh, uh, cannot get chlorine for the water to ensure they have safe drinking water. So, you know, the, the fear that we all have is that this takes a wrong turn, uh, out in the Mohawk territories, and this turns into violence where people get hurt. Well, but, you know, to uh, another point that Ernie raised, when you've got uh, these band council heads that uh, have chosen this project to go forward, I mean, they want uh, to be consulted as well. They feel that, that, that terminology actually doesn't work in this situation, right? I mean, the, 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 the tr- there's... No treaty. You're, you're comparing it to the treaties that we have in the other province of this country. In British Columbia, lands are unceded by the indigenous peoples. Mm-hmm. And so there is no treaty band council that governs the, these conversations. There are democratically elected indigenous uh, councils that, right. that, that do have a role here. Mm-hmm. But there's no constitutional or, um, or, or judicially recognized body uh, that you can actually enter into that kind of negotiation with, like you can here with our treaties in Ontario or the treaties in, in the Western provinces. Uh, or sorry, I should say the Prairie provinces. In British Columbia, it's, it's a very different matter and far more complicated and a living, uh, or sorry, I should say a live open question that the, the courts are still figuring out. Well, it's a case of uh, the Métis, for example, are saying uh, we'd like to be consulted on this issue ourselves. Uh, It's not just the people who are protesting that deserve to get the hearing. And since uh, we seem to be in the majority, uh, we'd want this thing greenlit. You're saying it's far more complex than that. I was just uh, going by what was uh, said in the various media by the Métis leaders out west, in Alberta, I guess, per se, and... uh, I think the most important thing, though, is is that uh, for for the the Canadian media is not to portray this as all Aboriginals trying to protect Aboriginal land. Right. Well, that's, that's essentially what these other you know, uh, native bands were saying, it, or these native yeah, nations. It, so and and so, you know, what we really have is is a disagreement between Aboriginals on a pipeline and a BC government that didn't take into consideration the dissent within the Aboriginal community and figure out how to appease the various demands so this pipeline could uh, get through. Well, then let me ask you, I mean, uh, what would be the quorum necessary to effect a veto? Uh, I mean, like you've got, you know, maybe, uh, as Ernie said, five hereditary uh, chiefs from the clans, and 
that's enough? That's enough to stall a project? Well, you know, I, I can't say in a specific case, but obviously we have enough right now to cause problems. And and it doesn't look to me like they're going to get this pipeline through without continued strife. And that's not what we want. And this could be actually a, a model that could be used for going forward. Again, BC is a very different kind of a place, as Dan correctly points out. And the BC government, who, as you remember, held up the Trans Mountain pipeline, pipeline right. now has to figure this one out for themselves and better start working on it. Well, in the interim, what we've got is a blockade of the, the train traffic between Ottawa, Montreal, and Toronto. And uh, this has to be... Well, because CN was saying the other day, the CEO, I guess yesterday, that uh, they'll pull all the trains. It's costing like $18 million a day. Via rail ain't running. People are making contingency arrangements with buses and uh, porters doing a nice business. Uh, so, you know, if is it incumbent? Mark Garneau, the transport minister, yesterday said uh, this is the provincial thing. Dan, you alluded to that earlier, uh, where the OPP have to go in and uh, sort this one out. Ernie. Off the top, oh, I said. Well, the federal government would never want to assume responsibility for, for what is basically an indigenous issue, which they are 100% responsible for. This, uh, you know, it's it's, 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 lands, it's it's great politics to say, oh, well, it's not my problem. It's the provincial government's problem. <laughs> um, you know, the reality is the federal government is involved, has to be involved. I'm not saying it's all their responsibility, but yes, I understand that in certain provinces like Ontario, you have the Ontario Provincial Police Force and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. In some provinces in Western Canada, you have the RCMP. That certainly would be their responsibility, I would think. So there's a lot of levels of involvement here that have to take place, but nobody wants to touch this because it's too hot a potato. So they don't want to, any confrontation. They don't want anything blowing back on them. Yeah, and it's funny, because, like, I, I, I sympathize with the, the aspirations of the protesters. I'm not really a protester myself, but I can imagine what they're looking for here is for cops to remove them from these barricades, right? They're, this is the same reason the, the young people in British Columbia were protesting on the steps of the legislature yesterday, because they want the pictures uh, of being taken away from, uh, uh, from these protests. And so I think there's obviously a, a difficulty uh, for police and law enforcement uh, to, you know, try and dismantle these protests, particularly here in Ontario, where it's really just protests of solidarity. They're not happening on Indigenous lands, as far right. as I understand. Um, and so it is up to the OPP to go in and enforce the injunctions that I assume CN and VIA are, are seeking. Um, and, and they ought to do that. By the way, uh, just quickly, John, I mean, uh, it's been suggested that these natives, Tyandaga, Tyandaga Mohawks, or basically pawns are being used, NGOs, you know, uh, money pouring in from environmental activists, uh, you know, and lobbies stateside might be supportive of this. And so in some ways, they're just leveraging that. Any any notion that that might be in play here? Well, that that, that sounds like uh, sort of a conspiracy theory. Uh, you know, I, I don't see that. I don't know if that's true. Uh, I think the Mohawks have uh, uh, a long tradition of standing up uh, uh, for uh, Aboriginal rights. I can't see any any uh, uh, evidence to suggest that they're uh, being paid by uh, the U.S. to uh, to do this. All right. Uh, just thought I'd ask the question, see if you. Do you on have it. evidence of that? I don't know. <laughs> I just, uh, it's, a it's just expedition. a fun conspiracy theory. Well, it's <laughs> not a conspiracy the theory. Somebody that. brought it up earlier, and I thought I'd uh, run it by Johnny there. And uh, if he heard anything or knew, he's always got his ear to the ground. He's not always on Bay and Wall Streets, you know. He's also on Main Street. Uh, Christy Blatchford lamenting her passing, all too young at 68, and the uh, the tributes are pouring in for a mm -hmm. storied legacy, and so on and so forth. Uh, 
Was she at the post when you were editing? Oh, absolutely. She uh, she was a force to be uh, reckoned with, and uh, I was her editor when I was uh, the deputy common editor. Uh, and so C- Christy would do reporting, and sometimes she would also do opinion, and I would uh, edit uh, the opinion. Myself and a fellow called John Kay did that. And uh, it was always interesting because we'd see her copy first, uh, and uh, you would read it, and you'd go, oh, this is a front page. Front pager, right? You know, not, we're not going to put it in the back in the comment section. And we did a lot of that in the National Post. We would put really strong commentary up front. And uh, Christy was often on the front page, uh, sp- particularly when she would be writing about Afghanistan uh, and, and uh, doing trial reporting. Uh, you know, she was always on the front page with that stuff. But some of her opinion writing was truly extraordinary. She was a great person to work with. What made her so uh, potent as a journalist? She didn't pull her punches. Uh, and uh, she was... Uh, uh, she knew what was important. Uh, she uh, didn't, you know, waste time on on marginal uh, pieces of a story. She got right to the facts, and she had a very common sense way about her, uh, meaning that uh, you know she could see what would resonate with readers, and she drew that piece of that story out. She also uh, was really important for uh, young reporters at the Post. Uh, you know, I worked in the comment section and the editorial board, and we were, you know, sort of like the tall foreheads. Uh, and and Christy hung out with the reporters and had a tremendous influence on uh, on the young reporters, particularly a lot of the the young uh, women reporters who were just starting. So she uh, she certainly has a, an incredible legacy, and it's not just her writing, but the also the impact she had on on, on people who worked with her. Yeah, very authentic, and uh, as I say, we lament her passing. By the way, uh, reading in the Post today, there was an interesting op-ed piece. Uh, Randall Denley writes that Ontario school principals have become an afterthought, and the bargaining sessions will only make it worse. Principals control over people who nominally work for them so weak that if teachers don't turn in report cards by the date agreed upon by their union, there's no punishment. Effectively, the unions are the tail wagging the dog. Uh, Ernie, I'll ask you, if they're coming to uh, resemble more of an industrial union, that's, I liken it, if they were manufacturing cars, they'd be telling GM what color the cars ought to be. Uh, is it getting to a point where what we're really seeing play out here, despite all the window dressing, is uh, control over the education system in the province? Well, I, th- I think we're seeing control over some aspects of the education system in the province. And I think it's, it's always fair to have that debate. But at the end of the day, you have a government that's elected rightly or wrongly, to determine policy. And uh, I understand the bargaining rights of unions, and I respect them. But as I've said on this program, and I've been saying for years, I mean, the teaching profession should be an essential service, in my humble opinion. I know why governments haven't done it. They're afraid of the cost. But you cannot hold children responsible for your disagreements with respect to whatever it is, subject matter, courses, pay, time off, whatever it happens to be, it's not worth penalizing young people who are there for an education. Surely that's important enough to our society that we should set this aside once and for all. On a cost-benefit analysis, essential service, that makes sense to you, Dan? Well, it'd be a huge cost to the government. Uh, an essential service means that you go to arbitration, uh, there's no negotiation in the in the conversation. So uh, often arbitrators will make the decision that uh, governments have uh, an endless pocket. And, and they have done that in a lot of cases with essential services at the municipal level, that municipal governments uh, and provincial governments have um, you know, deep pockets, and so they can pay for whatever the, uh, whatever the arbitrator decides. And that has been the, the common uh, way that arbitration has gone in this province. It would be how it goes with the teachers. 
if they were made an essential service. So the cost implications would be enormous to the provincial government. I agree with with Ernie. He's a former finance minister. He knows the implications of that. Uh, so I, I don't think it's better. I, I don't think it gets better if you make it an essential service. We may not have strikes anymore, but it's going to cost a lot more and there'll be no negotiation. But this was interesting, and you cited at the municipal level, where uh, communities uh, didn't necessarily have the ability to pay those costs. So it would require legislation, some kind of legislation that would say it should be based on the ability to pay. Right. I, got... I, I think you'd have to change legislation so that the ability to pay is recognized. And, you know, there are arbitrators and then there are arbitrators. Yeah, but the, I think the, the, the problem you run up to there is the constitutional challenge of legislation like that, right? Because if you're removing the right of a union to collectively bargain, which is a constitutional right, you have to counterbalance it with some measure. Well, I'd, then like, put, this, I'd uh, like to see where it says the right of the union to deprive young children of their education for their own personal gain. Well, well I mean, that's colorful rhetoric. That that, that's colorful <laughs> rhetoric, but it's not going to stand up in court, right? I mean, like, this is a this is a constitutional issue. And so you're going to... It isn't. This is, this is an... This is an issue about the education of our young people, something both sides, quite frankly, in this dispute, seem to have forgotten. Well, I, it's, a, it's all about the kids. It's not about Sam Hammond and w- whether he gets what he wants. It's not about Lecce and whether the government gets the right to tell the teachers what the hell to do. It's about the education of young people. So out there, both of you, wake up. Wow. All right. Uh, Ernie, using access to the microphone to make a political statement, take a stand. Are you still ru- are you running for anything? No, I'm not running okay. for anything. I just thought. <laughs> but I think that's the kind of rhetoric that made him a successful politician for so long, right? I mean, <laughs> yeah, he was a centrist. Uh, he was kind of the uh, Amy Klobuchar of the Progressive <laughs> Conservative Party in Ontario. I-, I wanted to get around to that as well. Uh, but before I do that, just uh, as a side note, I was noticing that Adrian Batra, I guess, was uh, the host or the MC at the Economic Club of Canada luncheon today. And uh, Stephen Lecce, the minister, was there. And she asked him some pointed questions, like uh, not least of which is these two mandatory online courses. Have you tested that anywhere, or is there any precinct where this is shown to be, you know, advantageous to the kids? But I remembered it was resonating for me, John, about uh, three weeks back in this program. You were submitting that this is something that's so commonplace now in uh, the ivory towers on Bay and Wall Streets. People are doing this as a rule. Why would kids or their parents be resistant to this? Wouldn't they want to support this initiative? Well, I think who's resistant to it is the unions. And what the unions are concerned of with is that you're going to use e-learning to replace teachers. I mean, that's really what I think it comes down to. I mean, the fact is, is that, you know, most training that I've seen, uh, you know, in the financial sector, it's all done uh, by e-learning. This is how you do your uh, all your uh, your fraud training, all that. It's all part of it. Uh, training for even for foreign uh, requirements, uh, Canadian banks are, are required to to uh, to put in place Volcker rules, Dodd Frank. It's all you know electronic learning. And if it wasn't. I mean, there wouldn't be any unemployed teachers in, in, in Ontario. They'd all be working for the banks teaching them all this stuff. It's... Yeah, but that, that's, a, that's a false analogy, right? I mean, you're talking about 40-year-old bankers at their desks at work, not 12-year-olds learning math at home. But right? I'll tell like... you something, though. The 12-year-olds are, are much more adept at using computers to learn what they would like to learn, the fun stuff. They're also able, I think, to learn uh, you know, other items on, on the computer as well. However, that said, the thing I would point out, and I've said this before, because kids are on computers so much and they're becoming so savvy, I don't think this is a big issue. I would drop it. If, that, if it was dropping it meant getting a, a, an agreement, I'd drop that. Uh, but the fact is, is that it is coming, and it is part of, of, of people's work lives, and uh, the high schools are going to have to figure that out. 
Well, you say drop it. By the same token, shouldn't parents be more supportive of it and say the government's going down the right road with this? Hey, unions, back off. This is a good initiative. Yeah, but about, it's about being pragmatic, though. Do you want to have strikes over over two courses for uh, e-learning? I'd say no. Okay. And I, I don't think parents like it either, right? I, think, I don't think parents are in favor of the idea of reducing the time that kids spend in classrooms so they're doing more in the basement at home on the computer, right? I, I, I'm not sure that this is a winning issue for the government, so I agree with John. I'm not sure why they're trying to hang their hat on it. All right. Uh, as to that fabled 12-year-old you brought up, uh, Dan, uh, you know, if you're 12, you get to ride transit-free. Well, I thought it was if you were 32 with a 12-year-old car. That was a great segue. <laughs> well, here's the issue. I mean, this is surface now. I guess the report came out today. Uh, roughly a third of uh, this leakage, if you will, the Presto car, you know, the, the 12-year-olds get through. These people are abusing it. To the, These are adults that are using kids' cards to deprive the system of the much-needed revenue. I think it was placed at seven, $70.3 million annually uh, in fare evasion. John, mm-hmm. should we be, all be concerned by this? Uh, we have to be concerned about this because, you know, as John Tory said, it's it's theft. But and the other thing that that's uh, concerning is people have made a business out of uh, buying these these MetroLink cards for kids and selling them on you know various social media sites, Kijiji and and, and whatnot. And you know, I I would have to ask. Is you know Tory's uh, you know idea that we have free uh, rides for kids under twelve? Is that something that's going to be sustainable uh, when we have uh, you know this kind of evasion going on? I I don't know. By the way, uh, free this, free that, and free the other. Uh, Bernie Sanders is riding that one to a certain popular wave in America. I mean, we've got these uh, the Iowa caucuses and now New Hampshire last night. He seems to be uh, the lead dog. I don't think that two narrow victories in popular vote in two small states means that he's leading the way in the oh, U.S. Oh, he's got an army of support, though. Let, let, let's wait till after A revolution on his it. back, as they said. <laughs> Look, I, I wish Bernie was doing better, but the fact is he's not, right? I mean, Iowa was a tie, and now New Hampshire is a tie. And and the, the newspapers might run a headline that says Bernie wins New Hampshire, but he didn't. He tied it with Pete. They got the exact same number of delegates going to the convention. The, the important thing to remember that uh, some people in the commentary south of the border seem to forget is in the Republican primaries— you win, and you win all of the delegates. You take all of them. Right. In the Democratic ones, if you, you win a proportional number based on your performance if you get more than 15%. And so because Bernie and Pete have been so close in the last two, uh, they now have the exact same number of delegates going into the convention. Um, it could be a contested convention if this keeps up. Well, and then you got Bloomberg waiting in the wings. He's going to pounce, I guess, on Super Tuesday, where you've got about 40% or a 34%, I guess, of the overall delegates going to be contested in one day. There's an argument. This is why Trump may fear him. Uh, you don't get into an argument with somebody who buys ink by the barrel and a guy has a news outlet. He actually told them not to write certain negative stories about his own financial background and worth and so on and so forth, John. I mean, is Bloomberg the uh, most prohibitive favorite or danger to Trump? Well, I, I think he certainly can win Wall Street. Uh, there's no doubt about that. Uh, and I think people would f- would not fear uh, Bloomberg as they would Sanders from an economic point of view. Uh, the, the challenge with Bloomberg, though, is how does it look for a Democratic Party that is supposed to represent working people when a billionaire can come in and buy the nomination? It, it, like it just it just grates against what the Democratic Party is supposed to stand for. Yeah, Dan. <laughs> Good. That was a bad segue. Uh, look, I, very official. I, I, would, I would I would agree, and and I would say that uh, I think the the Bloomberg problem is really you know he can he can buy every other advertisement on every American network uh, from here until Super Tuesday, and it might win him a number of votes. 
The challenge is that he has not spent the last few years getting all of the dirty laundry out in in the public. And we're seeing stuff now come out over the last 48 hours, videos and recordings of him saying a lot of stuff that's going to be not palatable uh, to a lot of Democratic voters, particularly African-American voters, about stop-and-frisk policies in New York and policing policies in New York. And that's going to cause, uh, I think, a lot of headaches for him over the next few uh, few weeks as we lead up to Super Tuesday when he's trying to battle for uh, you know a place in this primary and at the same time all of his dirty laundry is coming out to air. Yeah. And yet I have a feeling that... Mayor uh, Pete's looking better and better every day. Well, here, here. Even a Bloomberg, I was going to say, if he presents a real serious challenge to Trump, I think uh, Dems will forgive him a lot of sins. Uh, Ernie, I'll ask you finally, I mean, uh, because of the Democrat establishment and Bernie, if Bernie d- does get too high, you know, like Icarus getting close to the sun or something, uh, they're going to chop him off at the knees. You think they're uh, working behind the scenes to make well, sure... Well, they did the work? last time around. I mean, there's he no got doubt. Schlonged. That's what uh, <laughs> Trump no actually that said. There's 550 super delicate went for Hillary were no coincidence, I don't think. But, you know, at the end of the day, I think the Democratic Party has to decide what it wants to be. It's sort of lost touch with its blue-collar roots, in my opinion. And uh, I think one thing Pete Buttigieg does present is an avenue for them to appeal to the moderate voters without yesterday's man, like Joe Biden, representing those interests. Uh, he's out. He's done. Joe's done, so are we. Uh, Isn't that interesting? How symbolic is that? Thank you all for coming in this Wednesday afternoon. Ernie Eves, former Premier and Finance Minister. John Turley-Ewart, Risk Management Consultant on Bay and Wall Streets. Dan Moulton, VP in Crestview Strategies Toronto office. Thanks for listening to the John Oakley Show podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and anywhere else you get your on-demand audio. 